0: Greetings. There are many, many different ways to uh, name the awakening practice. (laughs) And one uh, traditional way is through the practice of dana, sila and pāṇīya, which are the Pali words for generosity and virtue or non-harming or ethical living and wisdom. And um, so I wanted to use this gateway. Mm, The Buddha said that Generosity was one of the easiest ways to come to awakening because that movement of the heart in giving um, liberates us from clinging or holding or attachment. And in reflecting on how that energy lives inside of us, it's easy when we turn our minds to it to see the innumerable ways that we are generous. The simple expression of holding the door while some of us go through. Oh how gracious some of you are when we as teachers step into the lunch line you know you're not like no this is my place you can't come in you know you're like yes yes step in and the many other countless ways that you have expressed your generosity and i'll say more about that later In acknowledging it, we also acknowledge the opposite of generosity, which is that holding on, the clinging and the attachment or the contraction. And it sort of feels amazing in a way when we think about, well, if generosity is a practice that leads to liberation, then why actually is it so difficult? And the Buddha pointed just specifically and over and over again to this one particular force that lives inside of us called clinging or greed or desire or holding on. In the Abhidharma, which is a compendium of mental states and linked to the arising of consciousness there are definitions of all these mental factors and descriptions of them. And it's said that clinging is like when you're frying meat in a frying pan, which is interesting, they came up with this, and how sticky it is. You know, how the meat sticks to the pan. So that clinging is that stickiness when when we feel um, the opposite of the open-hearted flow. There's also another uh, story that's a traditional story that's told in relationship to this and also kind of culturally specific, which is about um, how farmers try to protect their crops from monkeys. I don't know if you've lived with monkeys they're so smart in South Africa at the Cape of Good Hope there are a lot of wild monkeys and as soon as you open your door there's lots of signs warning they are in the car they are fearless sniffing around for food because most tourists right, going to the end of of that part of Africa have food in their cars and they're like that So um, the farmers uh, protected their crops by having coconuts and cutting the top of the coconut off so that there was this flesh, the sweet flesh of the coconut. But they made the hole just small enough or large enough for the monkey to put the hand in the coconut to grasp that sweet flesh. And... Monkey, even when seeing farmers, because they're smart right, coming to grab them or maybe even do other things to them, the monkeys couldn't let go. They would hold on to that sweet meat. And that reminds me of how tenacious we are all holding on in our different ways. And when I reflect on my old holding on and our holding on through the group interviews, I am so moved to acknowledge in one way why the holding on is happening. Because over and over again, one thing this culture doesn't do historically and over and over again, apart from in activist circles, is to acknowledge the impact of what it means to live in a world that is driven by ignorance. Our experience of not feeling safe in the streets, you know, in our, the fluid gender expressions that we have, the, living with that, even in the Bay Area, or the increasing violence that's being um, targeted towards trans and especially trans of color, that there's more and more violence towards those of us in our community with that expression, and race, or what it means to live in a country where the deepest striving is for profit and the impoverishment of so many people and the resulting struggle of so many of us and the impoverishment of those countries that have been colonized by large industries where wages are so low. Uh, Or when we hear about Harvey Weinstein and the sexual abuse of those women, 60 women, we're not surprised because so many of us carry that in our lives. Young girls and women And those of us who don't identify um, and are gender-fluid or non-conforming, we carry that. It's no surprise to us. And how deep and profound it is to live in a culture where that's going on and is going on. Naming it is to acknowledge then how understandable it is that each of us has grown the defenses that we have and how we hold onto the behaviors that describe those defenses because in a world that didn't acknowledge our fragility and the tenderness of our hearts and beings, in a world that hasn't respected us, right? And that, that's so pervasive. We have gathered whatever has been available to us, right? To survive. And so we are survivors. And so in some ways, those defenses worked because we are here. And in acknowledging these defences, it's easy in hearing the Dharma to th- want to get rid of them. So you remember in um, the sharing uh, that Dal uh, talked about in judgment, and Larry said, "Well, the Dal, the practice might be not to judge the judging." And here might be the practice not to judge the defense or to want it not to be there and to go into more of a cycle of wanting, right? So maybe then there as, a, as communities in acknowledging the conditions and how we have survived in those conditions Maybe it is to honor and respect those defense mechanisms and that holding. And this is a whole new way of talking about greed. And so if you are a conservative Dharma practitioner, you might be like, oh my God, what is she saying? But at least in this aspect of it, it makes sense to me. It makes sense in these conditions. There is, you know, there is, if there's time I'll go back to some of the more traditional understandings of this flow of energy. So there is then this um, invitation to turn towards ourselves with understanding and respect With the faith of knowing that those two energies, with caring, with that energy of presence, those four energies, we are creating a new way of learning how to be safe. Because we sense and know, even if it's conceptual, that actually safety doesn't come from shutting down. We understand why we have. No blame, no shame. We also want to offer a new way of relating to what our protective mechanism has asked of us. And that new way of relating rests with these qualities of the heart and mind. As I tell another traditional story of the Buddha, um, was it in the rains retreat? I don't know, in the rains retreat, or sometimes saying to the Um, community, the sangha, go out into the forest and practice. I think it was the traditional rains retreat, three-month retreat. And so the sangha went out into the forest to practice. And there were these tree spirits, the, the, um, the... In Buddhist cosmology, there are different realms and in the different realms, there are different spirits and energies and some of these different realm spirits were living in trees and were liking it in the trees and were pissed off when the Sangha came to, like basically, hey, you're in our space, you're sitting in our space, you're sitting in this forest. So they started like, making sounds that disturb the sangha and moving the trees and basically irritating the sangha. And the sangha were like, we can't practice here. This is like horrible. And it was also very scary. And so they went back to the Buddha and said, no, we can't practice with all these yucky, scary energies. And the Buddha said, go back and offer wishes of kindness and well-being and happiness to the trees and the tree spirits. And the Sangha was at that point we're at in relationship to these places of, can I trust that? Can I let go of my defense and fear for my safety to actually offer kindness And well wishing for themselves and for these tree spirits. And the energy of that kindness and that love, and we know that, right? We can feel it when we enter into a space or when we're with a friend or a partner or any, any expression of life, those moments when the love is palpable, the waves of it, it's like we can feel it, not just through an idea, but we can physically feel it. That energy becomes the field in which the heart opens and so the heart of these tree spirits opened and in that touch they moved from wanting to get rid of the sangha to protecting the sangha and that reminds me of um, in the Las Vegas shooting I don't know if you heard a woman, in all that chaos, a woman had fallen down. And a young man, in seeing her falling down and the bullets pouring down from that high room, hotel room, lay on top of her. Those moments of caring that, and protection that come from love... Ah, the Buddha says the real safety and protection. And that's what this path is offering us. So not to then take the invitation to love as a way to bang and hammer ourselves. Look, defense, you're not loving. Look, I'm supposed to offer you no. Because we are being called to honor our history and and have faith that the offering of kindness and acceptance over time, because it's lawful, will bring about the condition of the heart and mind's opening. There are many physical laws in the universe and um, I'm an insomniac and I have been listening recently to... uh, I listen to YouTube all the time through the night when I can't sleep and my big thing is listening to Brian Cox and all these other people talk about the Big Bang and two black holes fusing... 130 million years ago, and over the multi, the 10 to something, 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 multi-billion years since that 130 million years, the gravitational waves traveling at the speed of light have finally reached us. And that's how come we know what's going on. That vastness, operating in physical laws. It, it feels very reassuring to me. <laughs> something about, oh, wow, I'm part of something so huge that it's like eons, which actually the Buddha talked about. He said there have been eons and eons and eons, and we're just beginning to name that through science and the LED, the, the, the that big reactor, uh, where they're shooting protons and neutrons at each other. So um, they're physical laws that govern the universe and the Buddha said that there are laws that govern the mind. And he named that very complex set of laws as the laws of karma. One of the simplest dynamics in how karma operates is that for any wholesome intention, for any wish or blessing that has as its root caring or patience or kindness or mindfulness or love, that will be the outcome. That that is an unmutable law of the mind. That if we have an intention to care and respect for something, absolutely, we might not know when, but absolutely the consequence will be a flowering or a manifestation or expression of that energy. So we don't know exactly how or when, but that it will happen. And it is that law, that law of conditionality that can become the basis of faith and has been the basis of my faith for years and years. So that when I touch those places of grasping and holding on where I wish they would open and they're not I can offer I understand why you're here. And I want you to know I'm learning how to care for you and be patient. And as I reflect on that wish, there comes this faith and strength that maybe in the next second or moment, or maybe in the future, that energy will manifest in relationship this tightness and holding and if I continue to offer it which is what we do with the meta guidance that has been offered right? or the coming back into mindfulness may I come back and be mindful and present may I not abandon myself whatever those beautiful intentions that you have been working with each one of them Is building the conditions for that opening because in the environment of presence and love there is the opening that's the law of the Dharma and when Lisa asked the question how can I let go in the group sharing right how can I let go of holding on to wanting things to change How can I let go of that wanting? Then we explored different aspects of calling in the beautiful qualities to hold the experience, to hold what was underneath that wanting, to hold the wanting. And in generating that field, things begin to open. It is a purification process. And the purification process means that in the opening and that sense of well-being, we feel the delight of it and we're like, "Ah, I got that one. Or we could be like, I got it, okay. You know, we're grooving and because it's when we feel open when things have opened and it's so much more pleasant then it's easy it's easy to forget that we're in and on a journey and that actually each opening at some time will lift the next layer of defense that is asking to be met in the same way. And so it is an ongoing process. I So then I want to address, well, what happens when there's like an opening and then all that stuff comes up and it's huge and it's big and how do I hold it? And I'm saying to myself, yeah, may I, may I respect you? And then there's just like this, total wave of everything and there's no way that I can even say that because it's nauseating, you know? So what happens when we offer that, offer these beautiful energies and we find ourselves so contracted, so then what do we do to help create a little more rest? in order to sustain that opening. And one of the most beautiful cultivations of rest for ourselves when we feel swamped in this process is um, the six contemplations, no, the eight, no, the nine, no, the... Let me see, let me count them for you it's the <laughs> It's the traditional contemplations for the from the Vasudhi Marga on the cultivation of joy, and joy is one of the great qualities for um bringing rest and strength to ourselves on our journeys and um so the first is to contemplate wise attention or mindfulness or awareness. And the second is remembering the virtues of the Buddha. The third is rejoicing in the Dharma. And the fourth is rejoicing in the virtues of the Sangha. The fifth is considering your own virtue. And the sixth is remembering your own generosity. And the seventh is considering the virtue of those evolved beings in other realms and then reflecting on perfect peace. The ninth is avoiding persons overwhelmed with anger, and the tenth is reflecting on the suitors. The eleventh is inclining the mind towards joy. And I am going to just, because there's not a lot of time, I am going to um, speak on just two of these. And one is what it means to contemplate the virtue of the Buddha because it's a very traditional contemplation. And um, I love this contemplation Because I have known myself, my own mind, and so many of us teachers and sangha and students who have moments of insight, maybe more than moments of insight and awakening, and are still uh, sometimes held in the grips of these defenses and attachments. And what it is to contemplate a mind that is far away from all of them. That there is a person, a human being, who practiced the practice that we're practicing, who has come to a place where nothing. Nothing can get close to the strength of that peace and open heartedness. So it said, and I love this, it said that um, he has abolished all hundred thousand kinds of trouble, anxiety, and defilement, described as greed, hatred, and delusion, as misdirected attention. As consciousness, as anger, enmity, contempt, domineering, as envy, avarice, deceit, fraud, obduracy, presumption, as pride, he has abolished haughtiness, vanity, negligence, craving, ignorance, and the three roots of the unprofitable kinds of misconduct. All defilement stains fictitious perceptions applied thoughts and I am only, I am reading I am a reading like a little bit of pages and pages and pages it is said the Buddha stands utterly remote and far away from all defilements they can't come near That's so beautiful, it feels like the equivalent of all those eons, you know, of life, how magnificent that is, and that mind that is so far away from the defilements, and how that's for for us too, not just for a remote statue or representation, but is the offering for us us saying to each other one moment at a time walking the path to become remote from all those energies it might be that the Buddha doesn't do it for you and um, too far away you've never been to uh, you know just haven't read any of the stuff I'm talking about and it's like nope. So then so then I wanted to talk about Deepama who is considered, uh, who was considered an Arahant. Um, she died in 1984 and a lot of our teachers studied with her. And um, so I'm going to um, just read a little bit about her because she also her mind ended up being far away and remote from all these defilements. In 10 years, Deepama lost two children, her husband and her health. In her mid-forties, she was a widow with a seven-year-old daughter to bring up on her own. Both her parents were dead. India was far away. She was living in Burma. And she was overwhelmed with grief and confusion. I didn't know what to do, where to go, or how to live, she said. I had nothing and no one to call my own. Months went by, and all she could do was cry, holding a photo of Rajini in her lap, her son. During the next few years, her health continued to decline. And her condition became so serious that she felt her only hope of survival was to practice meditation. She reflected on the irony of her situation. When she was young and healthy, she had wanted to meditate and been prevented from doing so by her husband. Now responsible for a child, totally exhausted and in in despair, Facing death, her doctor had said, she felt there was no other option, that she would die of a broken heart unless she did something about the state of her mind. She asked herself, what can I take with me when I die? She looked around at her dowry, her silk sari, and even her daughter. As much as I loved her, I knew I couldn't take her. So I said, let me go to the meditation center. Maybe I can find something there I can take with me when I die. At the slowest point in her life, the Buddha appeared to her in a dream. A luminous presence. He softly chanted a verse from the Dhammapada, which is one of the very early teachings of the Buddha. Chain. Clinging to what is dear brings sorrow. Clinging to what is dear brings fear. To one who is entirely free from endearment, there is no sorrow or fear. When Deepama awoke, she felt clear and calm, and she knew she had to learn to meditate, no matter what the state of her health. She understood the Buddha's advice If she wanted peace, she had to practice until she was free of all sorrow. So from that place... um, Joseph Goldstein tells a story of when he invited her to come to Insight Meditation Society and they were walking down the road and in that part of Massachusetts, there's just this amazing color that happens in fall and that's when they were walking down the road and the pond that's close to Insight Meditation Center um, was reflecting all these colors and Joseph said to Deepama, isn't this exquisite? and she didn't say much so he turned her in and he said so you know what is in your mind right now deepama and she said only equanimity and mindfulness wisdom and loving kindness just that There's something so beautiful about contemplating what one of us has opened to and that that is possible for all of us. And so that is one of the contemplations of resting the mind in maybe not the Buddha, Maybe not deeper Ma, but someone who has touched you or inspired you—that one quality, perhaps. That's like, yes, that that touches my heart, and I want to contemplate it and keep it close by. Mm. And then to contemplate our generosity, which is what we began this exploration with. In our culture, we are supported kind of not to think and think about what we have achieved or what we're able to give. But in this practice, there is this invitation. Every time we give to take time to think, not to think conceptually, but to open to the blessing of that generosity, how it felt in the body and the gift that it was. The Buddha said you can contemplate the same generosity over and over again. If there's just one time you have been generous, you can contemplate that. If it's just, I kept, I held the door open for someone to walk behind me, for someone behind me to walk through the door, to contemplate, yes, that beautiful quality that is living inside of me, can I acknowledge it, can I bow down to it can I respect it and in doing so strengthen it so that I have the strength to hold the process that sometimes feels so difficult so here is a contemplation Um, here is a contemplation by one of my favorite poets um, Joy Harjo and one of my favorite poems. It's called Eagle Poem. To pray you open your whole self to sky, to earth, to sun, to moon, to one whole voice that is you. And know there is more that you can't see, can't hear, can't know except in moments steadily growing and in languages that aren't always sound but rather circles of motion. Like eagle that Sunday morning over Salt River, circled in blue sky, in wind, swept our hearts clean with sacred wings. We see you. See ourselves and know that we must take the utmost care and kindness in all things. Breathe in knowing we are made of all this. Breathe knowing we are truly blessed because we were born and die soon within a true circle of motion like eagle rounding out the morning inside us. We pray it will be done in beauty, in beauty. So, acknowledging our generosity, bowing down to it, Acknowledging our resistance and defense. Bowing down to it. And calling in this amazing capacity through the power of intention. To create the conditions to strengthen what is beautiful and to heal. What is grasping and closed and defended. In this way. May we grow together in beauty. Let's take a moment to sit. Thank you for your listening and your presence. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.